Our sermon text this morning is 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, before we jump in, I want to just repeat our, first, our two announcements we had. It is our monthly prayer meeting. It's at 5. Afterwards, we have Super Sunday. Uh, as a church that really believes God's called us to be uh, a witness in this neighborhood, that is a work that is completely beyond our ability and we're dependent on prayer. So I encourage you to, to come. Uh, it's a really important part of our church rhythm and stay for a fun meal. And then the Bates Farm, uh, October 1st, I believe it is. Uh, again, um, it, it's a Saturday. Uh, as you know, We're a church family, uh, but it's hard to build relationships when we see each other one hour a week. Um, and so you take six hours on a Saturday, and it's like six Sundays worth of fellowship time. And um, they have played volleyball, they have four-wheelers, it's a beautiful farm in, in Indiana, um, good time to get out of Louisville and, uh, and be in the country a little bit. So I just encourage you on these two things, come. Uh, let's open with another word of prayer real quick. Father, as we are in your presence, we are so thankful that you are not a silent God, but a God who's spoken and that you've spoken definitively through your word. So Spirit, may you come and may you take these words and may you impress them into our hearts and into our lives that we might walk in newness of life, that we might know our Lord more deeply and walk with him more faithfully and love him more wholly. It is in his glorious and beautiful name we pray. Amen. Well, the famous German atheist philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, one time wrote the following line, he said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. You may never have heard of Friedrich Nietzsche, but you've probably heard that saying, in fact, there's a whole Christian movie franchise based on that, that is, God is not dead, it's obviously a play off of uh, this work by Nietzsche, and um, of course, whenever you hear God is dead, the Christian in his mind thinks, well, I think God would have a different opinion about the matter, because we believe in a living God, a God that is not dead. But we want to understand what Nietzsche's point was, because in one way he was actually very prophetic. What Nietzsche was saying is that he's writing in kind of the 1880s to the early 1900s, and he was arguing that the rise of kind of empirical science, so all the scientific discoveries that were happening with a microscope, discovering germs, discovering how the planets work, all of a sudden we were explaining, or we were giving natural explanations for events that had always been attributed to God. So why does the sun come up and go down? Well, now we understand the sun orbit or the earth orbits the sun. Why do natural disasters happen? Well, we understand how nature works. And all of a sudden, we were finding these natural explanations. And so what 
Friedrich Nietzsche was saying is, well, God has become superfluous. We don't need him anymore. We've explained everything. Science is enough. And Friedrich Nietzsche was actually fairly prophetic because at the time he was writing, America was still a deeply, transparently, explicitly religious society. But today we live in a time where, although most people still believe in God, in terms of our public life, we're very secular. In terms of the, the, the selves that we take to our workplaces, the selves that we take to Kroger, the selves that we take to school, assuming you don't go to a Christian college, in those places, it seems that God very much is dead. And the beliefs that we have, the religious beliefs, these are things that are private. They're things you can hold in our home. They're things that can you know, affect how we live, but they shouldn't leave our house because the real world, the public world, the world out there that we live in, this is a world that is governed by observable, predictable, measurable realities. And I think this is one reason why many people in our country are so uncomfortable discussing faith uh, because for them it's private. Asking someone, what do you believe, is almost like asking them, what's your bank account information? <laughs> That's... That's my private information. Why would you ask that kind of thing? Now, there's a consequence of, of, of kind of the secularization, reducing religion to private life, and I, I think it's a probably unforeseen consequence, and instead it's made our lives incredibly boring. An explainable, controllable, predictable, safe world. It lacks mystery and true adventure. I think it's a true statement that for many of us, the most dangerous thing we might do in a day is eat a meal that's high in cholesterol. That's a result of banishing God and his presence from our public life. T.S. Eliot, he was an American poet. He wrote a poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock in 1915. One critic describes this poem as an examination of the tortured psyche of the prototypical modern man, overeducated, eloquent, neurotic, emotionally stilted, which is like, you want to read this poem now. Like, that sounds amazing. It actually is a beautiful poem, tragic in many ways. But he's describing the boredom of, of life when there's no transcendence. And he has one line in this poem that's just brutal. He says, I've measured out, I'm like booming a lot. I don't know if we need to turn off one of these mics. I've measured out my life with coffee spoons. It's a man living in kind of high class, you know, America, it's like my, the legacy of my life is going from one parlor and polite conversation to the next. I've measured out my life in coffee spoons. We're just a bored culture, right? One of the iconic images of our time is a family sitting around a dinner table all engrossed in their phones. Now, we tend to look at that as sad. It's like the end of relational connection, but it's also a sign of how bored we are. We're escaping the boredom of our life and our phones and our tablets and our computers. Only a culture that is dying of boredom would spend on average four to six hours outside of work purposes on a screen. We're just bored to death. And I'm, I'm saying all this for a reason, by the way, because it's into this kind of sterile, lifeless secularism that the words of Jesus drop like a bomb. Because Jesus inhabited a world of mystery a world where the unexpected could happen. He inhabited a world in which he encountered beings that were unseen, who are far more powerful than the physical forces that we tend to spend so much of our time thinking about. And in fact, part of the good news of Jesus Christ for the West is that you're not safe. 
The unexpected can happen. Your life is not predictable and controllable and manageable, and as a result, you can't measure your life in coffee spoons. In fact, you've been called on a quest, on a mission to follow Jesus. And there's gonna be dangers along the way and there's gonna be adventures along the way and you're gonna encounter realities and forces and beings whom you cannot fully understand. And John writes his text this morning to remind us of these realities as we continue on this mission and to give us words of warning and words of encouragement for the way. So the outline for us this morning is first a spiritual world Second point is going to be test the spirits. The third point is going to be don't be afraid. So follow along as I read verse one for us in chapter four. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now let's get some cultural context of what John is, is writing to. He's writing to a culture which, in contrast to us, prophecies were an accepted thing in their culture. Uh, there were, you know, official kind of cults that would have been found in every city where you could find, you know, you could see prophets giving messages from God. There's even a well-known Roman general who had his own personal prophet who would help him on his campaigns. Can you imagine if like the general over the you know, Pacific West was like, I think we should invade so-and-so country because a prophet told me. We'd be like, you're bananas. But that, that, was, how the, that, was, how the, that was how it worked back then, or that's how, that's how that culture operated. Uh, disputes in the Roman Senate, if they were disputing over legislation, could be settled on the word of a prophet. Again, can you imagine someone standing up in the United States Senate and saying, this legislation shouldn't pass because God has told me. People wouldn't take it very seriously. Or if you remember the story from Acts when Paul visits Philippi and there's this slave girl possessed by the spirit of divination and she's making a ton of money for her owners because people took it very seriously. And so when Paul freed her from that spirit, they were not happy with him. And then of course, this is a time when the New Testament's being written, right? So the apostles are writing letters and what what it seems pretty clear is that these letters were never seen as just like an interesting letter from an apostle, but they were recognized from the beginning. There is something of God speaking through these. God is giving oracles, messages to the apostles in a way he hasn't for four or 500 years. That's why Peter would refer to to Paul's writings as the scriptures in his epistle. Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher. He, He would have described this as a porous culture. What he means is that if you, you know, things that are porous, they allow things to go through, like a net would be porous, has holes in it, things can permeate it. So the physical reality was porous. Spiritual realities could, could break through at any moment. We live in a very bifurcated reality. You got the spiritual side that's in your home, and then you got the public life, and neither shall the twain cross. But in this culture, no, no, no. Anything could happen. Spirits could come out of nowhere. The supernatural could break in at any moment. And so it's into this world that John is speaking. So he says, test the spirits. Do not believe every spirit. And this is where we get to the first barrier to us understanding this text and this text having any meaning for us. Because if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, I am so far from hearing many spirits speak to me that I need to discern them. Like I don't hear, any, I don't hear one spirit speaking to me much less so many that need to discern between the spirits. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into, this is gonna be, get a little a bit abstract. 
But I want to ask, how did we get from John's day, again, where it was understood that the supernatural could break it at any moment, that spiritually do exist, to a time like today where, again, God, in many ways, is dead in our public lives? How did we get there? What happened? And what are the assumptions that's built on? Because at the end of the day, I, I think it'll be helpful. Hopefully it won't be too abstract. Again, one of the consequences of the ride, the kind of empirical sciences, um, where we test and hypothesize and then, you know, validate our results. One of, the, one of the consequences is that we began to find natural explanations for what had previously been seen as, as divine events. So again, you think of a hurricane, it would have been seen as purely God's hand, but then we discovered how weather patterns work and we started coming up with natural explanations. But we came up, but we began to assume something, and this is really critical. We began to assume that a natural explanation is enough to explain an event. If you can understand the natural causation of something, you've explained it. Nothing is left to explain. So for instance, the sun comes up in the west, east, sorry, <laughs> sets in the west, and now we know that's because the earth spins on its axis and every 24 hours it has a full rotation. And when the Bible says, no, it's God who brings it up in the east and sets in the west, you say, no, 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 no. We've, ex- we've discovered the natural causation, the natural explanation, nothing else is needed. The speak of God, you know, setting the, the earth across, or setting the sun on its course, that's just metaphor. It doesn't mean anything. It's not a true explanation. But the assumption there is that a natural explanation is enough. And here's why that is problematic. Because for the most deepest human experiences we have, natural explanations are never enough. Think of it this way. Okay, if I drop this, ready, everyone? Well, why did that happen? Was it because a spirit grabbed it and moved it? No, it's gravity. Okay, well, a natural explanation seems to explain that phenomenon. But how about love? When a man falls in love with a woman, how does he describe it? He says stuff like, the stars aligned over her. This person was meant for me. I found true love. When we fall in love, we realize that although there are certainly physical processes happening in our brain, those are not sufficient. That's why no one ever proposes like this. I love you, and it's because certain physical processes are occurring in my brain that give me this feeling. That is all. Will you please marry me? No one would propose like that. We understand although there are physical processes happening, it's got to point to something more. It's got to be involved in something more. There's got to be something more. And if we deny it, we're denying our deepest human experiences. So for the Christian, we're not afraid of science. Sometimes Christians are afraid of science and disprove God. No, all truth is God's truth. But we recognize this, and science at the end is a gift. I mean, I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for modern medicine. I had complications at birth. But we recognize that science is a limited endeavor. It answers limited questions. It cannot answer questions of purpose or meaning or the supernatural or why something should happen. And so when someone comes to us and says, no, 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 science has disproven God. It's, it's discredited God. We don't need God. We've got to push back and ask them, why do you assume that natural explanations are enough? That's not something that can be proved by natural explanations, by the way. Hopefully you found that helpful. But the point is that John's opening phrase, it drops like a bomb on our sterile, secular assumptions. It's like those old maps they used to have where they have areas that were uncharted and it would say, here be dragons. And we read that and we think that's so quaint. 
And then John says, no, but there really are dragons. And there's a lot of them. And some of them want to destroy you. John tells us we live in a deeply spiritual world. And much of the reality around us is not observable by the human eye. And part of that is good news. It may startle us. It may even unnerve us. But it is good news. The reason why epic films like Lord of the Rings are so popular, even among people who've never read the books, have no religious inclinations, is because it stirred these, these, these kind of apocalyptic, epics-like battles between good and evil where normal people are swept up into, into great quests. And there's something in us that longs for that. And so the good news of this of this bomb that John is dropping, that there are spirits, there be dragons, it's real. The good news of that is that the deepest longings of our heart to want to work for a noble cause, to want to do battle, to want to even do risk, it points to reality. It's grounded in reality because you serve a king who has made war on the evil one and he calls you to join him and it may cost you everything. But that's the only way to find life. We live in a spiritual world. And so John gives us the first warning, do not believe every spirit. The world is alive with spiritual beings, but not all are good. In fact, many are malevolent, violent, and they will destroy you if they can. So do not just trust every transcendent moment, every impulse, every desire that arises. Do not believe every spirit. Not every transcendent experience is from God. I, I, I knew of a church where the worship pastor left his family and his kids for a woman who served on the worship team. And when the church confronted him, when their family confronted him and, and, and this girl, what they said was, no, no, no. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to be happy and we're happy. So John says, don't, don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every impulse. Don't believe every desire because there are malevolent spirits that want to destroy you, that want to deceive you. This is the first warning. Do not believe every spirit. But he gives a command that goes along with this warning, which is test the spirits. This is our second point. So first point, we live in a spiritual world. Recognize there are many spirits and not all of them are good. Second, test the spirits. Let me again read part of verse one to verse three. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Again, you see that command, test the spirits to see where they are from God. Don't assume that every coincidence is a divine coincidence. Don't assume that every impulse that you receive or even every thought that comes into your head is from God, but test them. Critically examine them. But what do we examine them by? And he gives us a standard. Now, he first gives us a standard that, that is particular to this church, and then he gives us a general principle that we can apply in our time. But again, what's happening in, in this church, there seems to be this kind of beginnings of what became known as Gnosticism, which was a kind of constellation of beliefs that had certain similarities. And one of the similarities of this belief was that they, they believed that physical reality was kind of inherently bad. 
inherently corrupt. They didn't believe God had made a good world. And if that's the case, then when Jesus Christ, if, 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 if physical reality is inherently bad or twisted or, or deformed, then, then God can't become physical. He can't become a man. And so they denied that God became a human. It was, they either said it was just a, 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 a mirage or it was just a, an illusion or various ways. And so that seems to be what, what, what John is addressing here in these false teachers, false prophets. And so he says, for them, the standard is any spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And anyone who denies it, he's saying it's not just a mistake, it's not a matter of ignorance. He says, there's spirits behind these false teachers and they're demonic because they deny this basic truth about Jesus. But in verse three, he gives us the more broader standard that we use to test the spirits. In verse three, he says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. How do we test the spirits? Well, do they confess Jesus or not? And next we have to answer, well, what does it mean to confess Jesus? And first we have to see that it's more than just assenting to the truth of something. Because there are demons in the Gospels who confess, Jesus, you are, the, you are the Son of God, the Most High. They're assenting to truth about Jesus, and yet obviously they are not confessing Jesus because they're demons. I think we get a better sense of what confess means here in Romans 10.9, a verse you are very likely well uh, uh, familiar with. Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. To confess Jesus involves an allegiance and a belief in Jesus. It's not just saying, I, I acknowledge who he is, but it's, it's confessing our allegiance to him. What we don't always realize about this verse is that Paul's being incredibly subversive. Uh, he's being, um, I can't think of the word, he's being subversive. Because in the Roman Empire, they would confess Caesar's Lord. What they meant by that is that Caesar is the greatest authority on earth. There is none greater than Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And then along comes Paul and he says, no, Jesus is Lord. And every authority is interpreted through his authority and must bow before him. And so when it says every spirit that confesses Jesus is saying any spirit that confesses that Jesus is the greatest, the most worthy, the one deserving of our worship, any spirit that comes and confirms all that Jesus taught, this is how we know the spirit of God. And any spirit that denies that, again, it's not just mistaken, it's not just ignorant, it's, there's spirits behind that. It's demonic. It's a false prophet. Now, a question I asked, again, there's, because we live in such a different culture with different assumptions and different experiences, there just seems to be such a chasm between us and this text, and the false prophets in John's day seemed pretty obvious. They were actual humans who came saying actual things that contradicted Jesus. It's like, okay, boom, that's, that's a false prophet. We're the false prophets in our day. And this is, you know, me doing my best thinking, but I think... I think Satan's been very clever at being inconspicuous. And so I think the ways that we see the false prophets in our day is not as much through individuals standing up saying, hear ye, hear ye, I have this thing to say, but it's through systems that are widespread and that behind them are demonic forces. Here, let me explain. I've thought of a couple, I think. For instance, I think one of the false prophets of our day is the false prophet of consumerism. 
Again, there's no person named consumerism. It's a system that we operate according to. And every time you see a, a commercial, you're hearing echoes of that false prophecy. Because why is advertising effective? It's effective because it tells a salvation story. No advertisement just says, hey, this is the functionality of this vacuum cleaner. Buy it. It tells a story of how you need it. So, so think, you know, you're sitting by yourself, you're watching TV, you're a little bit sad because you're by yourself and you're watching TV. And then onto the screen comes this family and they're so happy. And they're driving in this car and it's zooming through the mountains of Colorado and the kids in the back aren't grumpy because they're having to spend a Saturday afternoon with their parents and the parents aren't fighting. And there's this message that you too can have relationships and purpose and meaning and excitement in your boring mundane life if you just buy this BMW convertible. It's a salvation story. The only problem is Jesus is not the savior in the story. Now you may think I'm being a little bit dramatic, like really a salvation story, but the numbers don't lie. The average American, this is crazy, produces six times the amount of garbage as the average non-American. I'm gonna put a number to that. The average American produces 1,700 pounds of garbage a year. 1,700. What that means is that there's something in these advertisements that are resonating with us because we're buying a whole lot of stuff that we then throw out. That's the first prophet, the prophet of, of consumerism. What's another false prophet of our day? Again, I think we look at the false prophet of sexual liberation, which just in that word already connotes salvific meanings, liberation, freedom. The idea is that we're repressed in our sexuality and, and by these kind of traditional ethics or whatever, and we need to find freedom from these oppressive, repressive beliefs. And one of the reasons, you know, and, and, and the one that's hitting us hard right now, of course, are questions about sexual ethics, LGBTQ, and one of the reasons these discussions get so heated is because they're often painted as matters of salvation. They're bound up in stories of redemption. Now, I wanna say this before I get into this. I, I think a lot of Christians, we need to watch our tone when we talk about this stuff because every human is made in God's image and is deserving of honor and respect. And too often, the tones of our voice contradict our own convictions. And one of the ways that we show honor and respect to people is we're willing to listen to their stories, which can be jarring because their stories don't line up with what we believe. But I'll tell you this, if you listen to stories, you'll begin to see themes of salvation and redemption. So if you, talk, you, know, if you listen to a transgender person's story, they begin to follow a very common, almost a script, and it sounds something like this. All my life, I knew something wasn't right. Something didn't fit. I just, I, I didn't belong. I, there was something wrong in me. And then I found out the reason is because I'm a man in a woman's body or I'm a woman in a man's body or I'm somewhere in between. It's a salvation story. Something's wrong with me. Something's broken inside me. My salvation is changing my gender. It's a plea for redemption. The only problem is that Jesus is not the savior. And then lastly, I think we look at the false prophet of politics. I've talked before about things like the reawakened tour and the very alarming way that it blends our political ideology and our hopes of salvation. But at the end of the day, every political party wants you to think that we are hurtling towards an Armageddon and they alone 
can stop it. They alone can save us. And again, it's a salvation story where Jesus is not the savior. And here's my point, and here's John's point, is that behind these false prophets, it's not just a matter of misunderstanding or, or differing opinions, but that there are demonic forces working to deceive people, to lead them astray, ultimately to destroy them. Because we live in a spiritual world with forces far stronger than us, and some of them are out to destroy us. So John tells us, test the spirits. Critically examine them, don't just believe them, and test them by the standard of Jesus himself. Do they confess that Jesus alone is Lord, that he alone deserves our worship and our allegiance, and if they don't, know that there is a spirit behind that and it is demonic. The world around us is far more alive than it appears, and so again, John warns us, don't trust every prophet, every supernatural event, but test them by our Lord and what he has commanded. These are the warnings that John gives us in the spiritual world that we live in, but he finishes with an encouragement. This is our last point, which is don't be afraid. Again, follow along as I read verses four to six. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them, but we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John is not simply giving us warnings. He wants to encourage us. If he just finished at verse three, right? Like I think many of us already have much in our life that's anxiety-inducing. It's like, great, now I have a whole world that I can't see that I have to be anxious about as well. So that's why John finishes with this encouragement. And there's two encouragements here. First is that you have overcome them. Verse four, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. Um, Caleb, my oldest, has a, a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. I think it was bought, I think it was like a Christmas gift. And it's wonderful. Like I read it and it's super encouraging. And they love it because it's a story. But in this, I, I think it's in the original one. It's at least in the kids' ad- adaptation of it. But Christian, they may, and if you don't know Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory of a, pers- of a guy named Christian who's traveling to the celestial city. And it's basically an allegory of his life through, world, uh, through, through this life, trying to reach heaven. And he gets to a place where he's trying to find lodging for the night, and he's traveling the path, and there's two lions on the path ahead of them, and he hears them growling at him, and he's afraid, and he begins to turn around to go back the other way, but again, this is the path that, that his king has called him to walk, and so what is he gonna do? And a man tells him, don't be afraid. The lions are chained. See, it was nighttime, and so all he could see was the silhouettes of the lions, but he didn't realize that they were chained where they were, and so as long as he walked down the middle of the pathway, they wouldn't be able to touch him. That's what John is telling them. Yes, there are spiritual forces. Don't, don't be blind, but don't be afraid. You have overcome them. They may terrify you, but they cannot harm you if you, as John has already told us in chapter two, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you remain on the path that Christ has called you to, if you believe the gospel that he first called you to, not giving up on it, finding hope in it all the days of your life, the lines will not be able to touch you. Or again, in chapter three, you keep his commandments. And of course, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and love one another. If you walk in the path Christ has called you to, it's not a promise of a suffering-free life or a hardship-free life, that's for certain. 
but it's a promise that the evil one will not destroy you. He will not be able to get a hold of you. The lions are chained. This is a deep encouragement to those of us who are discouraged with where we are in our walk with the Lord. Maybe we just don't love him as much as we wanted to. Maybe there's ongoing sin in our life that we can't seem to shake. Remember that the lions are chained. We're sinner saints until Christ comes back. We're new, redeemed creations, but yet we have the old flesh, and so there will always be temptations toward sin, but sin is not inevitable because the lions are chained. Be encouraged. Remember that. You have overcome them. The second encouragement, and this is why, that, why we have overcome them, is for greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the, Lord, than the, one who is in the world. There may be spiritual lions roaring in our lives, but we walk with the lion of Judah. He walks with us every step of our life. He will never leave us or abandon us, and so you have no reason to be afraid, and that's for two reasons, because again, greater is he. Jesus is greater in power. When the Son of God shows his face, the spiritual forces of darkness flee. When the Son of God shows up, the battle's over. It's not like, who's gonna win this one and it's a toss-up, no. Jesus is greater in strength, but he's also greater in goodness. If Jesus was just the Lion of Judah, he'd be strong, but could we trust him? But he's also far, far more good than we can possibly fathom. And so we can trust him, even when he leads us through valleys. It's not because he's not powerful enough to protect us. It's not because he doesn't love us. And frankly, we may never know until we see him face to face why he has allowed us to walk in certain ways. But we can know in the depths of our being, we can trust him. He's with us. He loves us. And therefore, whatever you're going through, it's for a reason. It's for a purpose. It's for your good. We can still our fears. Christ the Lord is with us. Remember what Jesus' last words to his disciples were. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Jesus, may you use your word to help us see what is true, to see that there's much going on behind the scenes that we don't see, to see that you've called us on a mission that is both glorious and dangerous, and that is why we desperately need to walk with you, for there are lions, and they may be chained, but they are dangerous. And the only safe place is in the center of your will. For you have overcome them. And in you we overcome as well. We pray in your holy name. Amen.